Thanks for tuning in to the weekly FBC Athens podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Kyle Henderson. If you have anything else you'd like to know about our church, feel free to check out our website, lovingtheworld.com. Enjoy the message. When you meet somebody for the first time and it buries itself in your mind, that first memory sometimes is really defining in your relationship. We just went somewhere new. We went to Iceland, and everywhere I turned, everything I did, it felt like I was seeing something new, meeting something new. And I'm sure that those are the patterns that I'll think about that place for all time. The series that we're starting that's going to last from here for a little while is about these moments where we meet Jesus and we understand him in a new way. The Gospels are opening up the story of Jesus and telling us about him, and we encounter Jesus in those moments, and we formulate our opinions about who Jesus is and what he means to our lives. And I want us to go back to those moments, and these are pivot moments in the history of the world because when Jesus appears, he changes everything. He changes the expectations of what a religious leader looks like. He changes the expectations of what the Messiah looks like. He changes the expectation of what servanthood really looks like. I mean, he really changes everything. And I want to pick out those moments when we read in the book of Matthew. So we're going to be reading the book of Matthew. And if you're not going to do any of the other reading with us, if you'll just read the book of Matthew with us, just read it every day and just ask God to say, would you show me Jesus? I want to know Jesus. I want to see him again new. This morning, I want to start in Matthew chapter 3, because in Matthew chapter 3, we get a story that's told in every one of the Gospels. It's the launch story of the ministry of Jesus. Now, we've got those early stories about the birth of Jesus, about what happens and the wise men. And then we get this one story when he's 12 of him going up to the temple. But the gap between that moment and this moment when he's about 30, there's just nothing in the material. We don't know what Jesus was doing. We know he was a carpenter. We assume that he was building furniture somewhere and he was building things with his hand and he was growing up, but we don't really know too much else. So this moment that Jesus chooses to step out into the light and to adopt his public ministry is really critical for understanding who Jesus is and what I'm supposed to know about following after this Jesus. He moves from the shadows into the light in this moment. And this passage in some version is repeated in all four of the Gospels. They all thought that it was a pivot moment. I want to look at the one in Matthew in chapter 3, and we'll read verse 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Jesus chooses the moment for him stepping out into public ministry as this moment with John the Baptist. Now, John had been leading a charge amongst the Jewish people to move them from a religious experience in which they defined their relationship with God through a series of events and things that they did to do religion And he was trying to help them change into a personal relationship with God that was premised on repentance and honesty with God. And John was confronting the people of their day because they'd gotten so used to this more distant relationship that they were frequently angry with John. And John was on the margins of the edges of society, and most people thought he was nothing of consequence. So when Jesus comes and connects to John, he lifts John's ministry up. He pushes us towards that idea and saying, we've got to always remember to confront the religious um, calcification of our lives that we tend to just get into the habits of doing church. And here's this moment he wants to step in and say, what I need you to do is do relationship with God. And so he goes down to John. John says, I shouldn't baptize you. You you don't need to be baptized. Jesus didn't need to be baptized in the same way other people did. He didn't need to be baptized for repentance. He didn't need to be baptized because he needed to be clean in some way. He needed to be baptized because he wanted to bless John. He was willing to humble himself and go in that water. And he comes up out of the water. And then this amazing thing happened. A bird lights on him. A bird lands on him. And I'm like, oh, this is one of my favorite moments. Like, I'm a bird watcher, and this has never happened to me. Now, birds have visited me and left me with gifts, right? But it's never lie, you know, coming, landing on my shoulder and cooing in my ear. And that would be, that would be enough for me. That would be just incredibly amazing. But the bird, and then the voice This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's really that sentence. It's that little phrase, three really important ideas that are told to us in this moment that really rocket the world. Because before this moment, these things haven't really been connected in a faith journey. So I want to look at these three ideas that happen in the blessing of Jesus as he comes up out of the water. And the first one there, it says, this is my son. Now, that's a really radical idea. Now, to you and I, it's not all that amazing if you've read this story or heard it before. But in that world, it was crazy sounding. The the gods of the pagans, the people around the Jews, had gods that lived far away and were very disinterested in people, and they themselves didn't talk directly with people. They had to have intermediaries, people that spoke in between them, and they would never send their child to come to talk to human beings. People were too little and unimportant. And so for the pagans to hear this message, this is my son is a a really shocking idea. And for the Jews themselves, they also had a remote view of God, and they had sensed that God had been very distant from them for years and years and years. And so for Jesus to show up and for God's voice to say, this is my son, it was radical to them. And that sonship, now they 
had thoughts about sonship and what that looked like. And for them, some of that implied power and authority, but that's not the way Jesus steps into this. To be a son was to be loved by God. This is my son. Tonight's the Academy Awards. How many of you are excited about it? Five of you, right? I know. I'm super excited about it, just for granted. How many of you have seen all the movies nominated for Best Picture? Yeah, right? So I know that y'all are not excited about it, but I'm very excited about it. And I try really hard. I get the list out, and I'm trying to watch through the whole list to see everyone. So in every category, I have an opinion about who's going to win. And about now, I'm getting down to the documentary shorts. And that's not Bermuda shorts. That are, they are brief documentaries, 20, 25 minutes. And so I'm down to that list, and I'm trying to see all that I can. And so last night, we pull up on Netflix, and we pull one of them up that's nominated for the Academy Award, Life Overtakes Me. Now, if you look at this picture, you think, oh, this is very uplifting and very delightful. Little kid's got a balloon being kind of lifted up. Let me just tell you, it is not light and uplifting. It's about... Um, refugee children in Sweden. They've been so displaced by being refugees that they have gotten ill from the uncertainty and the fear and the trauma of their life. It tells the story of three different families and three different children. One of them is this little boy. His name is Karen. And there's pictures of him as a swimmer, and there's pictures of him fishing, and there's pictures of him with his sister, and there's pictures of him at the fair. And then he becomes ill with what's called traumatic withdrawal syndrome. He falls into a coma. And in this movie, he's been in a coma for more than a year. Just a withdrawal from the world, from trauma and the uncertainty of whether his family's going to be safe and what's going to happen. Uh, the first occurrences that we have of that are kind of of note happen in the Nazi camps. It's happened here in Sweden. It's happened in Australia in some of their refugee camps. And it's happened hundreds of times. Kids fall into comas and just disappear. And then watching this dad, this dad who's, picking up his child. His child can't respond to him in any way. Watching him wash and blow dry his hair. Watching him feed him through a tube to his stomach. Watching him take his muscles and move his feet and shape them. Watching him taking him out for a walk. See, this is what it's like to be a son. To be loved not for what you can do, not for anything useful, but because the love of a father to a son is sacrificial in that way and it is de demonstrated in that way and it is in no way based on what the child does. This is my son, God says. And he wants to have that kind of relationship with all of us. Now, we live in a world where parental love and children has become much more conditional, less maybe than it used to be. We were gone. We were in Iceland. I love finding out about new places and finding out Iceland and finding out about their religious history. 
How did they become Christian? Well, they became Christian because they were, they were actually citizens of the European continent for a while. And Christianity came to the northern European area, and the northern Europeans were trading with the people from Iceland, and about 80% of the food has to be brought into Iceland, so it's really important for them to be able to trade, and they're trading with the people there. And the people in northern Europe, they decide they want the people of Iceland to become Christians. And so they tell the people in Iceland, said, we think you should all become Christians. And the people in Iceland are like, no, that's okay. We're pagans. We're, it's fine. We, we're okay with it. And they're like, no, no, no. We really want you to be Christians. And they're like, no, no, no. And so then they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kidnap all the people that, are tra- and we're not going to trade with you anymore, and we're going to starve you to death until you become Christians. We love you. And so the people of Iceland were in a problem because some of them were willing to become Christians and some of them really weren't. And so they were about to break out in a civil war and they decided they didn't want to kill each other. So they all got together and they met together and they put one guy in charge. It was a pagan guy. And he sewed himself into an animal skin. He spent a night and a day in it. He comes out of the animal skin. And he says, okay, we're all going to become Christians. But if you want to be a pagan at home, you're welcome to do that. Just don't talk about it. And you can still eat horse meat because... Uh, they weren't allowed to eat horse meat. The rest of the Christians weren't allowed to eat horse meat. And if you don't like the child that's born to you, you can kill them. Because they had this practice that if a child was born to you and you didn't like it, you could just leave it outside and let it die. And you could just wait till you have another child. And so they kept those three practices. So how does something like that 700 years ago make its way into Iceland today? So this is what I found about Iceland that was really shocking to me. Iceland is one of the only countries to have reached consensus. From 2007 to 2015, every single pregnant woman in Iceland terminated a fetus with Down syndrome following a positive diagnosis. They've decided that they're going to call out every weakness in their society, what they perceive as weakness. They're not going to let anybody like that survive. And if you're born into a world like that, then you've got to wonder all the time, am I loved really? Am I really valued? Am I treasured? Or am I just a useful end to someone else's means to make them feel good about themselves? Am I valued because I'm really smart or good looking? Or am I valued because of who I am deep inside of me? This is my the Bible tells us that there was nothing about Jesus that would make you be attracted to him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The history of the early churches, they believed Jesus was really ugly. Like when you looked at him, you wouldn't be attracted to him. Because most of us think, well, we want to really, I, I was worried about these pictures I have of Jesus behind me here. It's like, they're probably all the wrong pictures. They're way too beautiful. If you live in a world where you're valued by your external beauty or some sort of external mechanism, then you miss the truth of what's going on here. And the Bible says you can become the child of God through the adoption into God's family, through belief in his name. He gives you the right to become the child of God. And God will look at you and say, that's my son. That's my daughter. That one's mine. This is my son. God proclaims his relationship to Jesus and thereby to us in this moment. And he won't 
change. He doesn't care. He's not waiting on you. He is telling you who you are in him. And then he says, this is my son whom I love. Now, this word love is a really important word. And this is the first time we meet it in the New Testament. If you're reading through the New Testament, this is the first moment that you meet this word. And those first moments that you meet a word, they're really, really important moments. So while I was away, we stopped. We had, they had those machines to make coffee at most of the places. And I would go to the machine, and I'd push a cappuccino. It always makes me feel Italian. It always makes me feel better about my life. Cappuccino. Yes, I had one. The first time that word is used in 1790. Funny little word. You know what the word means? The word means hood. It's like, why do I get a coffee that's named hood? Because it's named after a very specific hood that monks wore. The Capuchin monks wore these hoods, and they were kind of brown and this light brown. And so they're, it's a lighter brown coffee because it's got stuff in it, and they used to put other things in it to make it even lighter and frothier than we make it. Cappuccino, it's a hood. I love word origins and meeting a new word. This is a new word. It was new in 2008, nomophobia. And if you just take the first of it, nomofo, nomofo. This is the fear of being without your phone. So how many of you have nomophobia? How many of you have ever gone back to your house to get your phone? Right? How many of you do the pat down? My phone, oh, it's right here, right? You, you have that in you. It's like you want to be able to communicate. You don't know what to do without it. I got to have it. I mean, people around us that experience our world and why, so we're, we're in lots of tourist destinations. You know what you see at tourist destinations? You never see anybody's face anymore. You just see this, people with their phones in front of their faces. It's like, man, maybe we could just experience it together. We could just, with our own eyes, watch it. It'd be amazing. But nomophobia sets in, so oh, I got to get it. We were, one of the places we were, this is a new word, 1780, the word geyser appears in our language for the first time. It's based on a word that appears first in 1294. And it's a place in Iceland. And it's a place in Iceland where they have hot springs and one of them shoots up in the air. And so later people got the idea that that meant all of those things that shoot in the air. And, but whenever you say the word geyser, you're saying a place in Iceland. So I, I, I love finding out those kinds of things. How many of you saw any of the Super Bowl last week? How many of you saw none of it? So a few of you, right? Okay, if you want to go back and watch, it's okay that you didn't see any of it. I didn't see most of it. I saw a little bit. Go watch a couple of the commercials. A couple of the commercials are fantastic. My favorite commercial is this commercial based on Greek. I love that. It's based on a work by C.S. Lewis, a great Christian, called The Four Loves. And he talks about that, except for they got one part of it really wrong. It says at the very beginning, the ancient Greeks. This isn't true. It wasn't the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks only had three words for love. The writers of the New Testament... They're the ones that found a new word for love. It's not the ancient Greeks. It was the people that met Jesus. And they said, the words that we have for love are inadequate to express the love that God has for people. They said, those words aren't going to work. We went after a new word. And they went after this word, agape. It appears only once in the Greek Old Testament. It occurs two or three times in ancient literature. But 
after the time of the writing in the New Testament, it proliferates. It's everywhere because it's the description of God's kind of love. This is my son who I love. This is the first time the word agape is used in these stories. This is the launching point of Jesus' ministry, and he wants you to know that his kind of love is the thing that he wants for you to have and wants for you to offer to the world, that it's an unconditional love. It doesn't matter what you look like or what you have or who you're who you know or where you're from. He says, yeah, I love you unconditionally. He says, I want you to know that this love is universal. It's, it's for every single person. He teaches us to love our enemies, people that we get along with, people we never get along with, people we don't like the way they look. He says, you got to love them. He says, I want you to have this kind of love, and I command you in his great commandments to love other people, to love God. It's this kind of love. And he says, I'm going to show you what that love looks like. The life of Jesus is going to be an example of this kind of love, and it's going to be at the core of following Jesus. This is my son whom I love. He said, I want you to love like that. I want you to be loved like that. And he says, and I am well pleased. God looks at Jesus and he says, oh, that's awesome. You're amazing. The word well pleased there could mean delight or joy or celebration. I celebrate you. Now, unfortunately, mostly the picture we have of God looking down from us is an angry God. I mean, one of the most famous sermons ever preached in America was sinners in the hands of an angry God. And sometimes people like to come to church and get beat up a little bit, right? Oh, you made me feel bad today. It's like, yeah, I might have made you feel bad today, but God wants to do something else today. God wants you to feel his pleasure today. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, the Bible tells us. Now, this picture is from uh, the Sistine Chapel. It's the creation of the world, um, very famous painting, probably more influential than anything else in Western art for what people think about God. I saw it as a little kid. It looked like this. They cleaned it up, and now it looks like this. I think he even looks more angry. When you see God looking at you, Do you think he's angry with you? Or when you see God looking at you, do you see the arms of a dad outstretched and celebrating you and say, baby, you're mine. I'm going to catch you. I delight in you. I celebrate you. See, when Jesus shows up and he teaches that this is the way God is, They've never seen anything like this in the world. A God who says, this is my child and wants you to become his child. A God who says, I love you no matter what you do. And what do I think about you? I don't regret that decision. I'm not worried about that. I'm not frustrated by that. I delight in you. This is my child whom I love and I am well pleased. Would you meet Jesus for the first time all over again. And remember what it's like to meet a Jesus who thinks of you that way and sees you that way and wants everybody to be seen that way. This is my son in whom I am pleased. And I love him.